how is it possible for this thing to be triggered automatically and at the same time impossible to untrigger? Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. That's the famous scene from the 1964 Stanley Kubrick classic, Dr. Strangelove, in which the mad doctor explains to the American president the workings of the doomsday machine, triggered to automatically destroy the world in the event of a nuclear attack. It was cinematic satire at its finest, capturing the absurdities of the Cold War era nuclear arms race. Now, a new novel, Make Russia Great Again, by acclaimed satirist Christopher Buckley, imagines a modern-day version of the doomsday machine called Placid Reflux, a computer program created by U.S. intelligence that automatically attacks a Russian election as retaliation for the Kremlin's interference in America's 2016 election. In Buckley's version, the onslaught by Placid Reflux triggers a crisis in U.S. relations during which a furious American president named Donald J. Trump is desperate to do anything he can to mollify his dear friend Vladimir Putin. We'll talk to Buckley about the challenges of writing satire during a Trump presidency. And we'll talk to Slate legal analyst Dahlia Lithwick about the Supreme Court's landmark rulings this week about access to Trump's tax returns on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I got to say, I, like a lot of people, assume that the uh, Trump presidency was beyond satire. But I have to say, reading Buckley's new novel shows that in the hands of a master like him, it can still be hilariously funny. I mean, I was uh, breaking up into laughter just about every third paragraph of that book. Yeah, it, it is really funny. I, I think his insight is... That at the end of the day, you know, as much outrage as you have, as much as people want to fight back against this administration for those who don't support it, you do have to maintain your sense of humor at some level. And the kind of brilliance of Chris Buckley is that he's got a light touch, that he understands that you just sort of need, sometimes you just need to be funny. And he is very funny. And I think he also understands that laughter and humor and mirth is in some ways a survival mechanism in uh, these uh, very, very difficult times that uh, that we're living in. Yes, uh, and I agree. And yet Trump 
continues to say and do things that do seem beyond the wildest imaginations of any satirist. And I speak in particular of his interview Thursday night with Sean Hannity, who, by the way, is a character under another name in Buckley's book, in which Trump is touting the fact that he aced his cognitive test. And I think we got a clip of that uh, because it's so just delicious to listen to. I actually took one when I uh, very recently when I uh, when I was, you know, the radical left was saying, is you all there? Is you all there? And I proved I was all there because I, I aced it. And then, you know, of course, what this does raise, the question that it raises is, what exactly was this cognitive test? Um, And the Washington Post, um, in its account of this, had an interesting passage in which they wrote to wit. It's unclear exactly to what cognitive test Trump was referring to in the interview. The most recent publicly disclosed cognitive test Trump took at Walter Reed was in January 2018, when the White House's top physician said he got a perfect score. The exam Trump took then was the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which is designed to detect mild cognitive issues, largely in older people. The 10-minute exam asks patients to identify animals in pictures, draw a clock, and perform basic word recall exercises. So I think we should all take comfort in the fact that the president apparently can identify animals in pictures and draw a clock. Oh, I take a lot of comfort in that. (laughs) Yeah, I will say that, um, I mean, maybe some of the best commentary on this question of the president's cognitive abilities comes from a former skullduggery guest, uh, the extraordinary Trump impressionist J.L. Covan, who did his own cognitive test in character as Donald Trump. So uh, I think he referred to it as not cognitive decline, but for him, cognitive incline. So uh, people can find that on Twitter talking about satire. That's pretty good. A a couple of serious uh, items to just take note of. Uh, First, you know, obviously these Supreme Court rulings, uh, which on the one hand affirm the rule of law and that a president is not above uh, the rule of law, both from Congress and prosecutors. We'll have to see in particular the 7-2 ruling that says that, that Cyrus Vance, the DA in New York, can subpoena Uh, Trump's financial records from his accounting firm. I don't think there's any realistic prospect, as some have hoped, that uh, this will lead to the uh, public disclosure of any of his tax returns, uh, certainly not before Election Day. It's under a grand jury subpoena. Grand jury subpoenas are covered by secrecy, and unless uh, Vance brings an indictment, and we don't know what exactly is the case that he thinks he may have, we will not see any reference to those tax returns unless they're quoted in the indictment. We'll see. But one other, I think, uh, looming deadline, which is going to come up well before uh, Vance brings his case, which is Roger Stone is scheduled to go to prison on 
Tuesday. And uh, he and his supporters have been petitioning the White House for a pardon. There are some reports that uh, William Barr, the attorney general, has warned the White House that if the president does pardon Stone, it could produce a mutiny within the Justice Department. Uh, Certainly, Barr's own interference in that case has led to quite a uh, controversy. So I don't know whether Trump is going to pull the trigger and pardon Stone or not. But I think uh, this could go down to the wire. Yeah, I think the only possible compromise, although I don't know that this would prevent the mutiny that Barr is talking about, is if he commuted the sentence rather than a full pardon. I think it's going to be very hard for Donald Trump to resist using his absolute pardon powers to do this, uh, given everything that he believes about the Mueller witch hunt and the deep state being out to get him. I mean, the question is, can he really kind of suppress his instincts to do something that maybe politically wise? There's been no evidence that he is uh, you know, willing to do this. I, I, one thing I will say about the Supreme Court, I just want to say one last point about the Supreme Court decisions here. I think the only thing in his presidency lately that has been mildly uh, reassuring is that for all of the norms that he has broken, for all of the institutions that he has been willing to undermine, the one line he has not crossed is a direct court order. And the Supreme Court in these decisions, whether you like the way they ended up or not, they still show that the court is a powerful institution, it is independent, and it has the final word. At the moment where this president defies a Supreme Court decision, then we will know that we have gone beyond where any other president in this country has gone. And uh, that's when I will begin to really worry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some would say you should have been worrying a long time ago. But uh, that is the uh, perfect uh, setup for our first guest, Dahlia Lithwick. So let's get right to it. We now have with us to talk about the Supreme Court's rulings this session, Dahlia Lithwick, the senior legal correspondent for Slate and the host of the Amicus podcast. Dahlia, welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you've got a piece analyzing these uh, big Supreme Court rulings, which we got this week and others uh, entitled The Political Genius of John Roberts. And uh, the uh, subhead is the chief justice stood up to Trump, placated Democrats and scored indisputable points for judicial supremacy. Explain why this was a big victory for John Roberts. Yeah, with one tiny caveat that I don't write my headlines. Every journalist says that, right? Like the word genius. I'm taking yeah. so much heat for the word genius, and I promise that I was can not imagine. Me. But uh, yeah. um, I, look, I think the point is that John Roberts entered the 2019 term with every single big ticket issue on the docket. In my 20-year career, I've never seen a docket that had literally everything, guns, abortions, contraception, you know, the president's financial documents, Title VII and gay rights, you know, DACA rescission. This should have been 
by anyone's calculus, the term that blew up the U.S. Supreme Court as we knew it. And I think that he managed to so masterfully surf the entire term. And he did that, you know, by throwing in with the liberal wing on a bunch of cases where it was surprising, you know, on, on Title VII, on the DACA rescission, on abortion. He just changed, you know, decades of his own ideology in order to take the temperature down. And then on these last two cases uh, about the financial records, somehow managed to pull off this masterful seven to two opinions, talking about lofty principles, talking about Aaron Burr and John Marshall and separation of powers. And it's like so profound and and true and beautiful somehow everyone came out of Thursday's decisions thinking they'd won right trump thinks he won because nobody's going to see those documents democrats think they won because the president is no longer making broad claims about immunity but the real winner is john roberts who somehow managed to get through what should have been the most explosive term of his career with everyone agreeing that the court is an awesome apolitical nonpartisan institution it's i mean Everybody except the Trump White House, by the well, way. Trump himself yeah. went nuts, although important to say all of his legal advisors are saying this was a huge victory for him because the thing he wanted was to shield these documents. And he has done so for probably the foreseeable future. So the fact that Trump thinks this was, quote unquote, a political prosecution by the Supreme Court, I don't know if it counts for much, but I do think... John Roberts, look, his rep is for playing the long game. And I think he rescued the court both from being an A1 priority top of mind going into the election, but also the entire conversation about court reform that was heating up, right? If Joe Biden gets elected and Democrats take the Senate, we're going to pack the courts, create new district court judgeships, you know, add a circuit court. That's off the table. No one's talking about that. Okay, Dahlia. Well, let's situate Roberts a little more here. Is he any more liberal than people expected when he was first nominated to be a Supreme Court justice? Has that been an evolution? Was he more liberal? People didn't realize it. Or is it simply, as I think the conventional wisdom is among court watchers and Roberts watchers, that he is an institutionalist and someone who wants to protect the reputation of the court in so doing, probably protect his own reputation in historical terms. What's really going on with John Roberts? Who is he? I think I would say a couple things. One is he was never a liberal. He's not a liberal. He's not more liberal now. This is not a liberal. This is not even a moderate, right? I think that when people said Anthony Kennedy was a liberal because in two or three doctrinal areas, he would throw in with the liberals on the court. He was never a liberal, right? Anthony Kennedy was a staunch conservative. 
And John Roberts is a much, much more staunch movement conservative who comes up through, you know, the Reagan Federalist Society, all the, the, the hoops that suggest that he is exactly as conservative as he has always been. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is you are absolutely right. He is first and foremost an institutionalist. I think that John Roberts, had he not been elevated to chief justice— would have voted very differently, right? I think that when he became chief, he made some of the moves that William Rehnquist, when he was chief, made too, which is I'm going to subordinate my own ideology because it's for the good of the court. And I don't think there's any dispute that John Roberts has conducted himself as a different kind of actor because he has felt, especially since Trump started taking pot shots at the court, that he has to protect the court. And he's very, very mindful of that. And if you look back on the times that he has punched back at Donald Trump, it's always when Donald Trump goes after Article Three judges, when Donald Trump says there's Obama judges in Trump. That's when John Roberts talks, because he really feels deeply that the only power the court has, right, by design, neither the purse nor the sword, is public respect. And that's his thing. So that's all he has, and he fights for it. The third and final thing I would say, and that has been a little bit lost in these discursions on John Roberts' most fascinating man in America, is that the swing justice on the U.S. Supreme Court has moved in leaps to the right with every new swing justice, right? So when my career started, it was Sandra Day O'Connor, also a country club Republican, also staunch Republican, who sometimes threw in, right? More conservative than her, Anthony Kennedy, more conservative than him, John Roberts. And I just want to flag that John Paul Stevens always used to say when he was asked, you know, you came onto the court, you were the center of the court. And by the time you left the court, you were the radical far left. Did you move left? And he would always say, I didn't move left. The court torqued around me. The left wing of the court when I came on disappeared. What was the middle of the court becomes the radical left of the court. The right wing of the court becomes, you know, conservative. And then these people are added on who are far, far, far to the right of anything that existed when I came on. That dynamic is still descriptively true. So what John Roberts is, is a man who has not moved, but has seen Alito and Thomas, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch torque vastly to the right of the court that he came on to. Well, I, wa I want to push back on that a little, Dahlia, because, you know, to some extent, I think the biggest surprises from this term were uh, Gorsuch and perhaps to a lesser extent Kavanaugh, who uh, didn't follow the Trump agenda down the line. Gorsuch wrote the LGBTQ opinion. Both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh went along with the 7-2 uh, majority opinion rejecting the Trump administration's arguments for absolute immunity and affirmed the right of Congress to conduct oversight of the executive. So it seems to me that their performance, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh in particular, the two Trump appointees, kind of undermined a lot of what a lot of liberals were saying when they were nominated that these guys were going to be down the line rubber stamps for the Trump agenda. 
On that, I completely agree. I guess it's probably worth just picking one nit, which is, of course, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh in the Vance case, they concur and they would have, right, had a higher bar for subpoenas. So it's, it's, they, they do think that presidents are special. They just don't think presidents are quite as special as Alita and Thomas did. But I agree with you in principle, absolutely. The most fascinating in my view, people at the court are Kagan and Breyer, right, who are peeling off to the center. And we saw that in time after time this term. And then uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch peeling off to the center. And what becomes a really fascinating Justice Sotomayor and Ginsburg sort of at the far left on the ramparts fighting for, you know, religious, the, the wall between church and state. And on the far right, Thomas and Alito speaking for themselves alone. So I don't disagree that something really interesting is happening there's almost a center that's happening at the court. And I also don't disagree that Gorsuch is fascinating. And the, the decision that didn't get enough attention on Thursday about, the, you know, the, the Native American tribal lands penned by Gorsuch, I think probably the single most protective of Native American land rights opinion I've read in my career. So there is no doubt that both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are not doctrinaire in some of the ways that we've seen from Alito and and increasingly from Alito and Clarence Thomas. So I don't want to suggest by any means that there is a mon monolithic 4-4-1 split at the court. I think it's more complicated and more interesting. I would point out that on uh, with Kavanaugh, with respect to uh, particularly the Vance case, he was very clear in his confirmation hearing that he was going to uphold this principle that no one, including the president, is above the law and was you know, reverential toward the Nixon uh, case, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. But Dahlia, back to cases on Thursday involving investigating and issuing subpoenas uh, to the president or to other organizations. There has been a little bit of a debate in legal and political circles about who won those cases. And I think depending on how you define the terms, you could argue both sides won. Uh, there are, in terms of certain judicial principles, uh, maybe the liberals won. In terms of the practical realities uh, and the political issues, then maybe maybe Trump won. How do you see, I know I, it's reductionist and it's uh, oversimplifying perhaps, but I'd love to hear your analysis of who comes out better in these cases. Yeah, I think uh, I snarked on someone's podcast yesterday that it was like T-ball, like everyone was a winner. <laughs> everyone gets a trophy. Yeah. Um, and for exactly the reasons that I think you just laid out, if you are looking at this as a temporal question, are the voters going to see Donald Trump's financial documents, the sort of inner gross seething guts of how <laughs> His financial operations existed for decades before the 2020 election. No, we're not. We're not. And given how hard Donald Trump has fought and that he has pressed his Justice Department into service fighting that fight for him, that's a huge blow. People really wanted to see those documents. Donald Trump did not want us to see them. But I think beyond this temporal question of are the documents going to be seen 
before the election. I think you're quite right on grand principles, by the way, that should have been reaffirmed 9-0, I think, as just purely neutral constitutional principles and legal principles. Then I think that the idea that, you know, Donald Trump sent a lawyer into court to argue before the Second Circuit that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and be immune while he is a sitting president. That idea is gone. And it was it's not just gone. In some sense, it's gone 9-0 because none of the justices, even the dissenters, accepted the proposition that he is utterly, quote, temporarily immune, absolutely, whatever the language was. Hold on a second, Dahlia. I want to just explore that for a moment, because when you read the Vance decision, which I did to bone up for this um, for this episode, there's a a graph that leapt out at me. The, The president and this is from the Roberts opinion. The president is not seeking immunity from the diversion occasioned by the prospect of future criminal liability. Instead, he concedes, consistent with the position of the Department of Justice, that state grand juries are free to investigate a sitting president with an eye toward charging him after the completion of his term. Now, if that is the Supreme Court view, and that's the one and the Justice Department view, doesn't that bar Vance from bringing a criminal indictment against Trump while he is in office? And therefore, he is temporarily immune as president of the United States. Well, he's immune from uh, being uh, tried and convicted, right? That was the OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel memo already says. We don't have definitive guidance on this, but we know internal documents within the Office of Legal Counsel have long said that the president is immune from criminal prosecution while in office. I think that just is probably... But the language there says, with an eye toward charging him after the completion of his term. So if that's the only guidance we have from the Supreme Court, it seems to be saying, no, you cannot even charge, you can't even bring an indictment while he is president of the United States. Yeah, again, I think that was why Robert Mueller failed to, right? I mean, I think that this Mm -hmm. has been right or wrong. This OLC rule has been elevated to law, whether or not it's true. And I think that that is unsettled. But I don't know that Roberts is necessarily sort of making a final ruling on that. I think the more worrying thing in that opinion is John Roberts saying, we're going to kick it back and, and allow Trump to make new arguments, right? I mean, he's certainly saying, he doesn't say, and therefore the grand jury gets these documents tomorrow. He's saying, so Donald Trump now bring up better arguments for why but, but Dahlia, this stuff should be but, shielded. But and that's, Dahlia, that's I mean, alarming. But, but don't defendants always have that right to argue that a subpoena is either you know not relevant or overbroad? I mean, isn't he saying pursue that litigation first? Yeah, he is. And I think you're right, because I think that the consensus I have heard is Donald Trump's already made his best arguments for why these subpoenas uh, should not uh, attach to him. And he's failed. So why is it that John Roberts is saying, hey, you always have the right to come back again? And it does raise the deeper question you asked about, is this just an effort to run out the clock? And did John Roberts just give him a green light to take another run at it 
in the district court so that this, you know, lollygags around longer. And I, I think in both cases, what's frustrating is because even in the Mazars case, the, the, the harder case, the congressional subpoenas, John Roberts lays out this four part test, right? He says, come back to the district court and make a showing that whatever this freaking test is, which, by the way, I still don't understand. But now there's this four part squish test. And I think Adam Schiff would tell you in the congressional congressional committees would say, dude, all that is already in our subpoenas. All everything you asked us to prove, we've already shown. And so I think in both cases, there is this argument that by giving them another chance to go back to the district court and make better arguments, all they really did was allow the administration to run out the clock. And that I think that's a really meritorious argument. In other words, if these tests mean what they are supposed to mean, they've already been met. So why go back to the district court and give him another chance to do it again? I'll just give you a hypothetical. Let's, you know, Vance proceeds with his case. He decides he's got evidence to indict the president. He sends the president a target letter and the president's lawyers go right into court saying, no, you are constitutionally barred from doing that because a president can't be indicted while in office. That will inevitably, I would think, go up to the Supreme Court, which would delay this. I mean, certainly delay this well beyond Trump's first term. So I, I think there's a lot of latitude on that question on that core question of whether a president can be indicted while in office. But I want to ask you something else, because a lot of liberal scholars were applauding this ruling, thinking it's somehow going to lead to a imminent Vance indictment, and we will see the tax returns before the election. Uh, Neil Katyal uh, wrote that today. Here's Lawrence Tribe yesterday. The Vance case should be expedited in the lower courts, if the Nixon tapes case could be decided in three months and Bush v. Gore could be decided in one month, this really should not drag out beyond the November election. Aside from the fact that there isn't a Vance case right now, he hasn't brought an indictment, what Tribe seems to be arguing there is... Okay, Democratic prosecutor in New York, hurry up and bring a criminal indictment against the Republican president so we, so it can influence the election. Is that right? Isn't that something that you would condemn William Barr for doing? I, I think that what you're hearing there is just absolute frustration that progressives have felt, right? This was the, the McGahn subpoena in the impeachment. This was John Bolton. You know, the sense that judges were just sort of sucking their thumbs and waiting things out and that everything became moot because courts operate at this glacial pace. And everything you're hearing about Vance, by the way, I'm hearing the same deal about Congress, right? That all those committees should just get get to work, roll up their sleeves, reissue the subpoenas, fight this in court, not let this wait until there's a change in Congress and it's all mooted. And I think you're absolutely right to say that this urgency on the part of activists to not, you know, to strike while the iron is hot, you just got your win, don't waste it, is really, really of a piece with a, a frustration I have heard 
over every single piece of litigation that just was slow walked, slow walked by judges who said, how is it that Judge Sirica managed to do the Nixon case in 42 seconds? How is it that the U.S. Supreme Court, as you said, managed to do? And so I think that there's a weird tension there between the pace at which the law happens and the pace at which politics happens that is embodied in everything you're hearing. The one thing I would say, Mike, is that, and, and this just goes back to this cliche that the Supreme Court, you know, they, they always say, oh, if you walk around the courtyard, there's stone turtles everywhere. Their turtles are literally built into the architecture of the court because there is something glorious and wonderful about the slow, careful, deliberate pace of the justice system. And they all gibber about the turtles all the damn time. And this happens to be an area where I really think that's why I started by saying, if you look at this as a temporal problem, it is clear Democrats lost. But the court will tell you, I am sure, that they love the fact that this has happened so slowly that it will not be an election issue. They love the fact that they are this lofty branch of government that gets to go at this turtle's pace, because in their view, that allows them to just celebrate the law and the grandeur of the law and not get caught up in the political moment. It's annoying. <laughs> Dahlia, just as, just as we're uh, winding down here, I want to come back to the Chief Justice and ask, ask you uh, two quick questions, one jurisprudential and the other personal about Chief Justice Roberts. The legal question is looking at this term, in particular looking at the Louisiana abortion decision in which he was also voted with the, the liberal justices. What does this tell you about how he would ultimately rule on uh, Roe versus Wade? Obviously, a uh, case that uh, many of you, our, our listeners, are uh, really focused on. So that's the legal question. Answer that, and then I've got the personal question. Okay. I mean, my answer to the legal question is that last week was a fascinating Rorschach test of how female liberal commentators and male liberal commentators read the chief justice. Jeff Tubin, Larry Tribe, right out the chute, were like, this is a great day for Roe v. Wade. John Roberts is onside. Take the win. Melissa Murray, Leah Littman, Dahlia Lithwick, Linda Greenhouse, Jessica Levinson all wrote pieces saying, holy cow, we're doomed because the next case that comes down the pike that isn't literally identical to a case that was decided four years earlier, the chief has just all but told us that A, he's dismantled the test from Whole Women's Health and B, he thinks Whole Women's Health was wrongly decided and instilled dissent. So I just think it's a freaking crazy Rorschach test where a lot of male commentators said, clearly John Roberts has found Jesus, so to speak, um, and has determined that you know Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. And a lot of commentators, inclu including yours truly, just think that Roe is on a, the thinnest thread and he's looking for the next opportunity that he can, without disturbing stare decisis, uh, strike down Casey and Roe. So I, I wish I could tell you, I, I feel like this is a like testosterone uterine problem that transcends doctrine. Uh, that could be the, the that could be the title of our podcast. If we can get testosterone and uterine. I think it was the title of mine last week. It was oh, last okay. week. All I right. think mine was uteruses. For, it was me and Melissa Murray just beating down poor Jeff Tubin. So, all right. On the the personal question is there was a 
Small story the Washington Post had. It didn't get a lot of attention. Um, but in June, Chief Justice Roberts at the Chevy Chase Country Club, where he belongs, fell and, and hit his head and was briefly hospitalized. Uh, after the Washington Post uh, made inquiries about it, the court said that, that it was you know, fairly minor and importantly said that he did not have a, uh, a seizure. And this is relevant because he has twice in the past had seizures, once early in his career when he was in private practice, before he was on the court, and then later, I think it was 2005, maybe 2007, um, at his uh, vacation home off the coast of Maine, he had one. I also recall that when he was in law school, I believe, he was hospitalized due to exhaustion. Are you aware of um, any serious health problems uh, involving uh, Chief Justice Roberts that could would mean that he might uh, not have uh, as long a uh, career on the bench as uh, many other justices and chief justices in particular have had? You know, it's it's such a good question. And to me, I think it's, you know, no, the short answer is I'm not aware. I have no inside scoop. I, I do take the, the press office at their word when they say he was just dehydrated. But I do think there is a larger, really, really disturbing question about how the Supreme Court gives out information about the illnesses of the justices that goes back. You know, you'll remember uh, Rehnquist and problems, you know, with with alleged painkillers after back surgery and then more problems when Chief Justice Rehnquist had thyroid cancer and the court said not a word. Even with Justice Ginsburg, we find out often weeks and months after a hospitalization. So I do think if undergirding your question is the larger question, why can't they be straight with us and transparent with us, especially when you have several octogenarians on the court about their health? I I can only tell you this has been a frustration for me for 20 years. Yeah, I will point out with with Chief Justice Roberts that I'm sort of focused on this issue because I reported during his comp- his original confirmation hearing that he had had this uh, this initial uh, seizure. I think medically speaking, if you've had three seizures, you are often sort of formally considered epileptic. So he's had two apparently, not three, uh, but that does raise questions about his health going forward. Okay, so. I got one last quick question for Dahlia <laughs> hit before me, we hit let me. her go. Hit your forecast. Uh, put it. Put your forecasting cap on. Uh, we have an election in November. The original returns come in. It looks like Biden has won. The Trump campaign files lawsuits left and right to challenge. Uh, claiming fraud uh, all over the place. It goes to the Supreme Court. What does the court do? This is the thing that keeps me up at night, and it's a a really long conversation because I think that if you look at how the court has just generally handed the COVID-related litigation in the last few weeks and questions about efforts to have, you know, vote by mail or curbside voting, the court has been relentlessly awful, Uh, you know, most importantly, the Wisconsin efforts to help Wisconsinites mid-COVID to vote by mail. And so I really deeply worry that the court has this very fanciful, maybe turtle-based notion that they don't want to go around doing anything willy-nilly around voting, uh, that we have five justices, I believe, who are very, very, very apt to do nothing uh, to 
to help clarify what I am absolutely certain now is going to be just a hellacious election beyond just claims that there were fraud on both sides. There's going to be, I think, swing states where people could not vote. I think that it may be days before we count ballots. And I think that the Trump administration is going to capitalize on all of that for the reasons that you said, Mike. Uh, They're already claiming that all mail-in ballots are fraudulent. They're already claiming vote fraud. And so to me, everything I've seen from this court just on the COVID, how do we uh, expand the franchise and help people vote in a pandemic? The court has been all about constraining the vote. And that really scares me. It suggests to me that they are not going to be uh, apt to intervene in a way that I think is fair. Well, uh, this is, uh, I've said this before, I think this is going to be Bush versus Gore on steroids uh, this uh, this fall after the election. And if your forecast is correct, I doubt you'll be uh, writing pieces that your headline writers could talk about as examples of the political genius of John Roberts. If, but either, uh, but either it, way, yeah. we will want to have you back on the podcast. So. <laughs> I, I, I promise that if we all survive whatever that election is... <laughs> Um, and John Roberts uh, pulls another rabbit out of his hat. I will use the word genius in ways that I disavowed at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dahlia. Great to talk. Take good care. Thanks. Thanks, Dahlia. Take care. Bye-bye. Of course. We now have with us the author of Make Russia Great Again, Christopher Buckley. Chris, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm happy to be on anything called <laughs> itself Skullduggery. <laughs> That's how we get most of our guests, just on the title alone. Does, that, does the name scare some of your guests away? <laughs> it's probably about satanic worship. <laughs> right, which comes up in uh, Make Russia Great Again, I noticed. Indeed um, it does. So look, I have one cosmic question for you to start out. You are a satirist and a quite an accomplished one, but how does one write satire about a president as preposterous as the real one we currently have in the Oval Office? Uh, it is a valid question, Michael. <laughs> I uh, the, I had a, there was a nice review of the book in the in the Washington Post earlier this week, and he said uh, something like, "It's not much a case of Buckley shooting fish in a barrel. He's more like a fly gleefully circling a large pile of manure." <laughs> <laughs> I I, I kind of like that. I, I'm I'm, I'm going to have that made into my coat of arms. You know, a fly rampant over pile of manure. You know, the answer is it's a good question. I don't know that I have a good answer. Kurt Anderson, who's a very shrewd satirist himself, has called Donald Trump the greatest self-paradist in U.S. history. And it's, you know, it's, it's I, I don't argue with that. I gave up. <laughs> I renounced political satire four or five years ago on the grounds that American politics had become sufficiently self-satirizing. So I turned to historical fiction and banged out a couple of historical fictions that were, that were satirical. 
and I kind of, you know, a number of people said, gee, why, you know, why aren't you writing about Trump? And I said, well, I don't really know how. Trump as, a, as an object of satire is both a low-hanging fruit and a challenge, precisely because he's a low-hanging fruit. But it seems that we are in a golden age of satire. Look, it's look, <laughs> Stephen Colbert. Trevor Noah, this brilliant new lady on the block, Sarah Cooper, has invented a, an entirely new field of satire, lip syncing. <laughs> so I don't know. I just decided to, I guess, uh, suck it up and get back in the water. Well, Chris, uh, I got a follow up to Mike's cosmic question, as he put it. But uh, before we <laughs> before we get to that, why don't you just, for the sake of our listeners, tell us what the basic premise of the book, give us the plot outline and what the story is, is really about. Well, it's a sort of a strange Lovian premise. You remember the, the greatest satirical movie ever made, Dr. Strangelove. The premise is that there is a uh, computer in the, deep in the bowels of U.S. Cyber Command that is codenamed Placid Reflux. And this computer was designed before the present administration to retaliate against Russia if Russia interfered in one of our elections. And it doesn't, this computer doesn't launch nuclear weapons. It merely responds in kind by interfering in Russia's election. And like the doomsday machine in Dr. Strangelove, it's programmed with things called autonomous protocols. So when, <laughs> after Putin interferes, and I think you know a little bit about this subject, <laughs> Michael and, uh, and Dan, uh, when it interfered so massively in our 2016 election, and there was no U.S. retaliation, Placid Reflux assumed that the chain of command had been interrupted, you know, that Mr. Trump had been killed or, you know, isolated. So it retaliates and defeats Putin in a re-election and elects president of Russia, the head of the Communist Party. So this takes sort of everyone by surprise because most people have forgotten about this computer. And the staff of the White House is presented with this you know, to repeat the earlier metaphor, steaming pile of manure. And they don't quite know how to deal with it because they know that if they tell Trump about this, he's going to go absolutely ape and shut down all U.S. intelligence capabilities, which he's already derided. So it, it starts on a, a, a moment of, I guess you could call it comic panic. Now, you referred to Trump as being low-hanging fruit for satire, but it seems to me that you are satirizing the people around Trump as much as you are Trump. And many, if not most of the characters are rooted in real people, their names only slightly <laughs> adjusted. Are you referring to Vice President <laughs> Mike Pence, yeah. presidential daughter Ivanka, and, uh, and son-in-law Jared. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty rich cast of characters, isn't it? I mean, uh, and uh, they seem to be uh, here. To, some of them here today, gone tomorrow. 
the book is essentially a faux, or as Mr. Trump would say, fake White House memoir. And the writer, the narrator, is this sort of likable guy. He's a schlub. He's, he's, he's named Herb Nutterman. And he ran the food and beverage operation at Mar-a-Lago. And Trump has now gone through six chiefs of staff. And Herb is happily retired. He's worked for the Trump, for the Trump organization for 27 years. He's happily retired. His phone rings, and it's, it's Trump. And he hears this voice, how's my favorite Jew? <laughs> and Trump's saying, you've got to come help me. You know, you've got to be my chief of staff. And, it, it, you know, Herb's wife had a you know, threatening suicide, meanwhile. So he's, a, uh, he's essentially a decent guy in a, you know, in a swamp of indecency. And he's, he's really trying to do his best. He's loyal. He has this sort of verbal tick. He says, I don't want to say that Mr. Trump was corrupt. And then, and then he'll he'll grow for some other word for corrupt. But uh, anyway, he's just doing his best. I'd written two drafts of this book. The first two were utterly dreadful. And my beloved longtime publisher and editor, Mr. Jonathan Carp, said to me, uh, I, I was really in despair. And he said, why don't you do this as another White House mess? And The White House Mess was my first novel. And it, it too, was a faux, fake White House memoir, also by a chief of staff, a sort of hapless chief of staff named, named Herb. So I'm, I'm waiting for a reviewer to say that in 34 years, Buckley's imagination has run the gamut from A to B. But it was sort of a fun form to return to. Mr. Carb's advice just immediately unlocked it, and suddenly it it became funny. Rather than a the previous drafts, it just sort of came off like bad John Le Carre. Well, Carp is a good friend of ours and a, an excellent editor, so I'm not surprised. Just one real quick follow-up on the narrator, the memoir writer, Mr. Nutterman. I'm just curious, you do make him, I mean, schlub, yes, but a, a somewhat sympathetic schlub. And so I guess the question I have, one of the things that that, Washington, that rave Washington Post review said about your book is that it succeeds in part because you are not angry. You are, in fact, delighted <laughs> to have this pile of manure as your target. And I just wonder are you making a point by making Nutterman a somewhat sympathetic character that you believe there are people around Trump who take these jobs and are not all bad? Well, I point out his memoir is being written from a federal correction institute. <laughs> that, that is true, yes. When he's not writing his memoir, he's conducting napkin folding uh, lessons, <laughs> instructions <laughs> to his fellow inmates. I'm not really sort of an angry satirist. I'm uh, maybe life has been too good to me to respond with anger. So I'm more and I'm not calling myself in any way the, the equal of my idol P.G. Woodhouse, but that's P.G. Woodhouse is more my thing than, you know, the, the satire read in tooth and claw, if, if you will. And I've been criticized for that. I wrote that, that book that we were talking about earlier, uh, Little Green Men, was reviewed by um, Mordecai Rickler. Remember him? Oh, sure. Great writer. And he, 
and he took me to task for not being mean enough. And uh, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll cop to it. But it, in it, if I may, in in its way, I think the book "Make Russia Great Again" is makes its points about the venality, about the corruption, right. about the the nastiness. And Herb, you know, Herb, poor Herb. The book opens with him; he's retired, and it ends with him serving a lengthy prison sentence. And, you know, as to quote the title of Rick of another book about Trump by Rick Wilson, everything Trump touches dies. <laughs> Look what he's managed to do to the reputation of every Republican senator but one. They're going to be dissembling and, and trying to history will judge. And these, these, you know, the entire Republican Senate is going to have to spend the rest of its life you know, saying that, well, they, you know, we don't know the half of it, that they were working furiously behind right. the scenes and, you know, and they, they were horrified by Trump and all that. So um, I, I don't know why I bring that up. Oh, yeah. Everything Trump touches. <laughs> yeah. uh, indeed, you know, it, I write comedy, but it's not it's not very funny. And there's so much in this book that is so close to reality that you hit <laughs> you hit your mark left and right. By the way, when you're describing Nutterman writing his memoir from federal prison, uh, you were speaking on a day, I think we learned that Michael Cohen, Trump's longtime lawyer, is headed back to federal prison where he is indeed writing his memoir. So there is uh, very close parallels there. Yeah, I fascinated by that story in the Times today. Apparently, he went in to do some paperwork, and the paperwork bound him not to write a memoir while in prison. He said, you know, what's this? And 90 minutes later, three marshals arrived with handcuffs. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Don't you have a feeling that it had something to do with his, call it surprise appearance at that French restaurant Le Bill Bouquet the other night? Well, once it, once it, yeah, once it's on page six, of course. I didn't yeah. know that was part of home prison, that you got to go to, you know, a very expensive and Tony Upper East Side French restaurant. Anyway, I don't think he'd be eating coq au vin tonight. I just want to say, though, the characters uh, you've got are so delicious. There's the speechwriter, who you call Stefan Nacht von Nebel, but clearly based on Stephen Miller, somebody who seems to survive every uh, iteration, who writes the thought-provoking essay, The Final Solution to the Mexican Problem. Uh, I wonder how many people will get his, his name, Nacht von Nebel. Well, it's Nacht und Nebel was the famous documentary about the Holocaust. I have to say, I miss that, yeah. It translates into English as Night and Fog. Fog, yes, right. It was a French movie. It was titled Nuit et Brouillard. Forget who did it, but it was a, a famous and maybe one of the first documentaries about the uh, Holocaust. But uh, in the book, Herb... <laughs> 
they're trying to get him to make his name sound a little less German. <laughs> they're trying right. to get him to drop the von. Yeah. <laughs> and not to mention the South Carolina Senator Squiggly Biscuit, clearly based on a certain, yeah, who you write, whose ability to adapt was beyond even Darwin's imagination, which uh, I thought was uh, you captured uh, a certain South Carolina senator right there. But, you know, to me, what leapt out is, I mean, I don't know when exactly you wrote this, but there are so many passages that seem to anticipate reality, particularly I I was struck by the many passages in which it's clear that President Trump erupts, insisting that he doesn't have time to read his intelligence brief. And in fact, knowing that the intelligence community keeps intelligence from him and fails to brief him on it, that seemed to anticipate the Russian bounty scandal to the T. I know it was uh, it scared even me. At one point in the book, they precisely, they put something in the PDB that they know he won't read so they can say that it was in the PDB. One accidental bit of prescience was the Putin making himself president for life. That I wrote, you know, I started writing the book in October and right around October, uh, I have to sort of confect a Russian election that Putin, so Putin can be unseated. And so I, you know, uh, we have the election, this election, as it says in the book, was to make it more convenient for Mr. Putin to remain president until 2036. So that was an accidental hammer on the, on the nail there. I was kind of kind of pleased by that. Okay, kind of following up on that and, and Isakov's original cosmic question, you know, I want to ask you a little more about the challenge of writing satire in the age of Trump. And as you were writing the book and at the same time seeing what Trump and his White House are doing, were there moments when you thought, my God, what they are doing is more outrageous than anything I, I could conjure up. And I want to give you one example. Now, this would have happened. This is post-pandemic. So you were writing it, I guess, before that. But let me give you one example that comes to mind, which is Trump insists on holding a massive indoor rally in Tulsa during a pandemic, discourages mask wearing and social distancing, but makes every member of the audience sign a liability waiver. Then a million, a million teenage kids on TikTok sabotage the event by registering for the rally so that Trump, the Trump campaign believes the arena is full, but in the end, only a paltry 6,000 people show up. And a few weeks later, there's a major disease spike in Tulsa connected to the rally. <laughs> <laughs> Could you have come up with that, even you? No, A, I, I never could have come up with that. <laughs> and B, if I had, I probably would have scratched my head and said, but is it funny? <laughs> yeah, well, good point. My rule as I wrote it was, I was, to be perfectly honest, I was going for laughs. I figured, okay, let's just 
try, you know, again, I'm not comparing myself to him only to the extent that he is my, my hero, PG Woodhouse. It didn't, you know, the plot wasn't so important in his books. They're all kind of interchangeable, but someone pointed out that, you know, about three times per page, he has something that makes you smile or laugh. So I, I frankly cop to that, basically trying to make it funny. And it's not really very funny when you when you think about it. My God, you know, we're going to be, we have four more years of this. I, I don't put it this way. If he, if, if he gets another four years, I don't think satire is going to be possible. I think we're all going to be, uh, right. you know, sitting in lifeboats. Well, we have only barely done justice to the many wild characters in, in this book. We haven't even touched on Oleg Pashinsky, the Russian oligarch uh, and poisoner who has um, on his thumb drive tapes of uh, Trump's uh, liaisons with various members of the Miss Universe pageant uh, and starts releasing them as retaliation for placid reflux. But look, I've got actually a serious uh, question for you. And I would love to know what you think your father, William F. Buckley, would have made of a Trump presidency. Uh, I have been, uh, this is not the first time I have been asked that. <laughs> I think he would be appalled. The only, we've, I uh, did a search for, to see if he had written anything about Donald Trump. And the only thing I could come up with was something that he had dashed off for a magazine called Cigar Aficionado, <laughs> in which in which in which he is. I think he he refers to him more or less as a Bulgarian. Remember, uh, a Bulgarian. Not, right. Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter in Spy magazine back in the eighties came up with the really per still perfect appellation that Donald Trump was a short-fingered Bulgarian. You know, Donald Trump is not conservative. He's not liberal, obviously. He is Donald Trump. He is sui generis. He has no ideology beyond the cravings of his own id. So I think he would have been, um, you know, obviously some of the things that Trump does are quote-unquote conservative. But uh, but those are merely aspects of his crowd pleasing. National Review, my dad's magazine, last fall I learned that they were going to award their uh, William F. Buckley Prize to Rush Limbaugh, and I, I hired a lawyer, and it came very close to um, a lawsuit. But in the end, I I, I couldn't go through with it because I figured it only would have added oxygen to that uh, issue. I mean, probably it's possible most people didn't simply didn't notice. But I was very upset. And uh, amidst the volley of increasingly angry letters between me and the chairman of the board of directors, I asked him if he was planning to serve Vichy water at the awards ceremony <laughs> at the breakers. And he replied, that, I find that outlandish. <laughs> I was really tempted. I was tempted to pay whatever it took to uh, secretly have a bottle of Vichy water put on every table. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. Would you consider yourself a never Trumper? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course. 
Yeah. So you you fully identify with your fellow conservatives and Republicans who as a matter uh, of fact, taken Tom that Malin, the uh, the writer, circulated a uh, uh, formed as a sort of an ad hoc. I think it was writers and artists or writers and scholars or whatever against Trump, uh, never Trump. I point out the irony that in 2016, National Review put out a special issue titled Against Trump, in which they gathered up 20 mini essays by prominent conservatives and all credit to them. But, well, that was then. My point in my uh, when I was trying to get them to cease and desist on the Rush Limbaugh front was that endorsing Rush Limbaugh was a proxy Trump endorsement. My dad was very fond of, of Rush Limbaugh, but we're talking about, uh, you know, the early 1990s. And uh, when Rush was a, you know, call him sort of a comic talk jockey and, and very clever. Since then, he's become, he has drunk, he has quaffed very deeply the Trump trough and has become something else, or as uh, as Rick Wilson would put it, everything Trump touches dies. Rush does not die, and I hope he I hope he he defeats this uh, this terrible cancer, and I, I wish him personally all the all the best. I did get uh, my. My beloved uh, first cousin Brent Bozell, who you know, <laughs> yes. know. we've we've, yes. we've, ta- we've tangled with Brent <laughs> over the years. I bet you have. Well, I tangled with Brent when I picked up my New York Times one morning uh, a couple of years ago and in, read in Brett Stevenson's column that Brent was planning to award the Media Research Council's William F. Buckley Prize to Sean Hannity. Well, I tell you, my English muffin went uneaten <laughs> that morning. And by sundown, I had, uh, uh, Brent was in retreat, in part because he's a good guy, which left Sean Hannity snarling. And, uh, but anyway, I, I'm one for two. Well, Chris, that brings us back to the characters in your book. What is the name of the Sean Hannity character in your book? I was rather pleased with that. His, his shameless <laughs> colonity. <laughs> and the other host at uh, Fox is Corky Fart Martin. <laughs> so I, 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 I have to ask you about one other. It's actually a married couple in the book. This will be of particular interest to skullduggery listeners, which I'll explain in a, in a second. So this is the couple in question here are Katie Borgia O'Reilly and her husband, Jerome, known as Romy O'Reilly. Katie is a um, an advisor to the president and communications attorney attack dog. And Romy is her husband who has a a penchant for tweeting at the president about his mental instability. Tell us who you modeled those characters on and how you got their names. (laughs) Can I just read two sentences? Absolutely. About Katie. Uh, Katie was sexy in a, I don't want to say creepy, certain kind of way as if you might discover after sleeping with her that she was, in fact, an android or an Albanian assassin sent to murder your grandmother for no clear reason. (laughs) I I had to figure out how to uh, provide the reader with 
essentially a transcript of an angry phone call between Katie and Romy after Romy has tweeted that uh, the president is a head case, a mental case. And uh, because the book is a first-person narration, you can't be omniscient and, you know, just render the conversation. So Herb has stopped by Katie's office in the, in the West Wing when her husband calls. And he gets up to leave, but Katie says, no, sit down. I, you, know, you can listen to this. And she puts it on speaker. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a fun scene where she's, uh, I, I won't repeat the profanity, but uh, she's in saying, you know, that telling Romy that he can't do this. And he's saying, yes, I can. <laughs> in fact, I think it's very important that I do it. And she says, you, you can't call him a mental case. And he says, darling, he's any minute now, he's going to be complaining that someone has eaten his strawberries which uh, the alert reader will get the reference to the cane mutiny and uh, Captain Queeg, remember, who, uh, <laughs> yeah. who is a sort of a, a de- delusional paranoiac who accuses everyone on, on, on board of, of stealing, of eating his strawberries. But they, I, that was, um, I had some fun with the Katie character. I must say, I'm very impressed by these Lincoln Project ads. I think this is some of the most hard-hitting, brilliant commercial uh, uh, TV political ads since, you know, the days of the Daisy. Remember Daisy? Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, well. Tony Schwartz. Uh, not that Tony Schwartz, but he was also named Tony Schwartz. The one of, uh, you know, from the 1964 campaign that never mentioned Goldwater, but it's a little girl plucking the petals of a daisy. You know, now he loves me, now he doesn't. And in the end, a mushroom cloud goes off. And, uh, you know, the implication, of course, being that Goldwater is a a maniac who will lead America into a uh, nuclear war. Remember the old joke back in 64? They said, they told me that if I voted for Goldwater, we'd have half a million troops in Vietnam. Well, I did, and we do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just getting back very, very quickly to um, Katie Borgia O'Reilly and Jerome O'Reilly, part of the reason I mention them is because, well, first of all, my guess is that Kellyanne Conway may be less of a fan of this novel than George Conway. (laughs) And George Conway gave his first interview about his, um, his attitudes toward the president and his tweeting against him on skullduggery. So it all comes full circle. Well, yeah. well done. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us have known uh, the Conways for years and uh, <laughs> charted uh, their many iterations. Look, it's interesting that you uh, have pointed out something from 1964 because 1964 was also the year that Dr. Strangelove came out and Dr. Strangelove in many ways inspired your novel here. Placid Reflux clearly uh, is the modern day version. I hadn't thought of that. You know, the, the movie had its first, I guess it would have been called a sneak preview on November 22nd, 1963. Wow. And in the movie, 
Do you remember the scene where Slim Pickens, the commander of the B-52, is going through, they're going through these survival kits, mm-hmm. and he's reading out over the radio to his crew uh, the, what the contents of the survival kit. And they're going, one combination Russian English phrase book, one pair nylon stockings, 100 Russian rubles. And he goes, shoot fella could have a pretty good time weekend in Vegas with all <laughs> yeah I think there were I think there were a few condoms in that by the way yeah in the original script and in the then finished movie it's Dallas you say a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all, all this mm-hmm. and they went in they had they went back and redubbed it one yeah. of those little historical details uh, right. but um, right. it's still I think you know the definitive satire and and it's always endlessly rewatchable you may have written the definitive satire of the trump era here in um, make russia great again so um chris buckley i want to thank you for joining us on skullduggery i have a feeling that um, a lot of people are going to be enjoying and chuckling quite a bit as they read your novel well i i thank you and i have dug being on skullduggery (laughs) (laughs) well said well said thanks uh, so much welcome back anytime thanks to author and political satirist christopher buckley and senior legal correspondent at slate and podcast host dahlia lithwick for joining us on skullduggery don't forget to subscribe to skullduggery on apple podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think leave a review be sure to follow us on social media at skullduggery pod we'll talk to you soon